Amen. Everybody can grab a seat. Kiddos, you guys are dismissed. Was that me? I don't know. All right, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 18. No, that's a lie. Let's try over. Matthew chapter 1. I don't know where 18 came from. Um, But, man, it is good to be back. I don't know if you even realize, but I've been gone the last two weeks. Um, but it is, I am so grateful to be home and be with you guys. Um, the elders have graciously given me two weeks to go try to decide what the church is going to look like in 10 years. And so um, somewhere through this time, um, it has started to become translated that I just had two weeks off. Um, that I was just sleeping and eating honey buns and hanging out. Um, that is the furthest from the truth. Um, I've been working my tail off, praying, reading, going to South Carolina, South Georgia, uh, meeting with different pastors and leaders, just to try to figure out what, is, what are we going to look like in the next 10 years? What is God doing? What does Scripture mandate for us to be? Um, and it has been hard. One of the things in our marriage that I, always just, I just don't understand is I can ask my wife, hey, what are you thinking? Nothing. Like, literally, you're thinking nothing right now. Yeah, I'm just thinking nothing. Um, but I have thought and prayed and considered so hard over the last two weeks um, that there's been oftentimes where I've just sat there and thought nothing. I have no more bandwidth in my mind to think about the future. Um, so I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. So that, let me kind of run out real quick before we jump into the text in Christmas What's going to happen? So I'm still in the process of processing all the information and and what the Lord has taught me and what he's still teaching me about the next 10 years. Um, So the hope is that we have an elder retreat in middle of January. Um, So by that point, I'm going to have all these thoughts and theories and ideas on paper and action steps. We're going to, as elders, get away, pray, consider, fast, think about um, the next 10 years of the church. And then after that, so either late January, early February, we're going to kind of roll out the next 10 years and, and some specific action plans that we're going to try to take to get there. So uh, I know people have been asking, and I've been trying to give little snippets, but I also know that if, if you really ask my opinion on something, um, your hair is going to catch on fire. I'm going to talk so fast because there's so many things running in my head. Um, but, but here's, if I can just give one overarching maybe clue into some of the things that I'm thinking and considering and praying. Um, it was the last night of the retreat and I was sitting at a coffee shop in Statesboro and and the whole time it's been 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, what are we going to look like in 10 years? Uh, But I never yet stopped to do the math, right? Like, like what does 10 years actually mean? What does 2030 mean? So, so that means I'm going to be 42, which is no big deal. My wife's going to be 43 because she's a cougar. Uh, But here's what it really means that Auburn is going to be 18, so my, my oldest girl is going to be 18, which like I almost just passed out in the coffee shop when I hit that revelation. It means Grady's going to be 15, right? Emmy's going to be 14. Carolee's going to be 13. So what do I want the church to look like? What does the church need to be when I have four teenagers, right? Like I hope there's not a really good bar in Delonago when I have four teenagers because that's where I'm going to be, Right? But seriously, what, is, what does the church need to look like? What, is, what do I need for, for us as parents trying to learn how to raise teenagers? What does it look like for our children? Do they have peers that they're doing ministry with and growing with? And, 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 and what I've kind of learned through this whole process, just to kind of put a bow on this before we jump into Christmas time, uh, is this, that, that it really takes a family. That it takes older, it takes peers, it takes younger 
that, that multi-generational is really good for our discipleship. I've learned so much about the gospel and ways of life from those that are older than me. And I've learned so much walking through those that are in the same age and same walk of life as me, of learning from them. Uh, we can do this together. We can have our grievances or complaints or when we just say our kids, right? Like they get it. And then I've learned so much from you college students that you've pushed and spurred us on to not become lackadaisical, not to become lazy. So, so it takes all of that to have a good, healthy church that our family is growing in and thriving in. So, so that's just kind of a snippet of maybe what's to come. Is, it, it takes all of us. We can't focus on one area. We have to zoom out and say, how, how does discipleship happen best? And I think it happens with all of us participating in. So there's that. Um, moving into, oh, let me explain this real quick. In light of all that, um, over the next couple weeks, things might look a little different. So uh, gathering this Sunday, we'll have the gathering again next Sunday, 10 o'clock. Everything's normal. And we'll have Christmas Eve service at 3 p.m. at the community house. Um, so if you know where Hancock Park is, it's the rock building, um, kind of catty corner to Hancock Park. Um, that'll be at 3 p.m. It's awesome. We did it, we've done it the last couple years, but last year we did it there. It's just a great time to come sing together, worship, remember. Um, and then after that, the Dodds will be going to Waffle House like we always do. Anyone welcome. Um, and then the next Sunday, the 29th, there will be no gathering. So we will not be meeting as a church on the 29th. Some mission communities might get together, uh, but we're going to take that Sunday off and then we'll start back up on the 5th. Sound good? So next Sunday's normal Christmas Eve service, nothing on the 29th. We'll pick back up on the 5th. Good? All right. It is Christmas right? I am a Christmas fiend. I love the movies. I love uh, everything about the food. Christmas food just tastes better. The parties. Um, speaking of kids, I don't like that every time we go to someone's house and they say, hey, your kids want hot chocolate? I can, no, that's not a good idea. No, it's a really good idea. And then last night we were at a party and our kids spilled hot chocolate three times. And I'm going, I told you this is not a good idea. They're children. Uh, but I just, I love everything about Christmas. I'm in all the movies, uh, all the decorations. Our our Christmas tree is 10 times as big as it should be, but we just go for it at Christmas time. We just run into everything there is to know about Christmas. And I'm a Clark Griswold, if anyone knows that. Like, I, I just want our kids to have the best experience. I want the memories. That's all that I am. Rob Staples, or one of our elders, always makes fun of me about that. If you actually, if you don't know who Clark, Clark Griswold is, um, get out. You just don't belong here. This, this is not going to work. I'll go ahead and break up with you now. Uh, you, you can leave. But if you seriously, if you don't, go home and watch that today, and then that will make me make a bunch more sense because I, I'm all about it. I'm all about the memories. I'm all about um, the experiences. I mean, we, we yeah, go to Rock City. We do all this to have the Christmas experience because it's here. It's now. It's one time a year. Let's celebrate. But, but I have to remember constantly through this process that it, it's all turfish, right? It's all fleeting. This is not the main reason for the season, as Grant so eloquently prayed this morning. Uh, we have to dive deeper into it. This is not about Santa falling off your roof, right? It's not about a deranged elf man bringing a Christmas gram to you. It's about none of that. Did you like that? Just two Christmas movies just slid right in. Um, that's going to be happening all day. Euthanisms of Christmas is now, right? So I haven't preached in two weeks, and I'm just ready to go. So... Um, I love Christmas, but what we're going to see this morning in Matthew chapter 1 
is really trying to get down to the root of what Christmas is, because this is the Advent season. And I know a lot of us grew up not celebrating Advent, not really knowing what that means. Uh, Advent is just a fancy way of saying the, the coming, that Christ has come. So we've just been studying the book of Joshua, where everything was foreshadowing to the initial coming of Christ. So we've been pushing that way, and there's been foreshadowings and, and hints and prophecies pushing towards there's coming a Savior that will save you from your sins. But where we are in redemptive history, Christ has already come, but we know that he's also coming again. He's going to rescue us from sin, from death. There's going to be no more of that. That The first time he comes as a baby, the second time he's going to come as a righteous judge, and he's going to make all things new and Things are going to be incredible because we're going to be with him. He's going to restore everything back to how it once was. It's going to be incredible, but we're in this season of waiting because it's happened, but it hasn't quite happened yet. So Christ has come. The process has started, but it hasn't been fulfilled. So the first coming has happened, but now we're waiting for the second, and we're just kind of we're here. But there's a lot that's happening in the hereness that pulls us from Christ, that distracts us from him. I mean, we, I, I try to lay this before us all the time. Where we live, not only in redemptive history, but where we live in America in this day and age, it is easy for us to be distracted from Christ. I mean, there's nothing that's happening. There's no marketing. There's no television commercials. There's no songs. There's no really anything that's constantly in front of us through this Christmas season that is pushing us to the feet of Christ, reminding us all that this season is about. So we're in this already, but not yet. We're going to cover it a little bit this morning. We're going to talk about it next week and then Christmas Eve service. But, but there's just three things I want to lay before us to kind of get us in the mindset of where I think we should be. The first is I just want us to slow down and remember his first coming. That, that we've got to slow down. It's not going to be intentional. We never, as human beings, we never slide towards simplicity. We always slide towards complexity. We're always gravitating that way that, that what else can we put in our schedule? What else can we do? What else can we watch? What else can we participate in? But I'm laying before us, and I know we only have a week and a half left. But, but can we slow down and think and read and ponder and consider, because here's the reality. If, if you've grown up in church at all, there's nothing I'm going to preach this morning that's going to be new to you. There's just not. We know the Christmas story. We know everything about it. So what we do is we just assume it away. We just kind of go about our life. I know that I'm good. But if the Christmas story didn't happen, if the incarnation did not happen, we have no story. We have no truth. We have no salvation. So this isn't something we just go, yeah, yeah, I've got that. Let's, let's move on. Or it's not even anything like, let's just, I'm just trying to survive the holidays. No, we need to slow down intentionally, remember, consider, think, ponder. The second thing is that we need to look forward to a second coming. I mean, are we excited about the day when there's no more sin? There's no more death. There's no more hurt. There's no more pain. I know there's a lot of us in this room that we really dread the holidays. For some of us, we're having the first this year without a loved one or without a brother or sister. There might be something going on. There's just a lot of hurt and pain around this time of year. So can we look forward to the future when there is no more hurt, when there is no more pain, when we're with Christ forever? Because that's going to really start to shape and form how we view Christmas now. And the last one is we've got to decide what we do while we wait. 
So, so while we're waiting, while we're in this season of waiting, the already but not yet, what then do we do? What, what are we striving for? What are we working towards? Because here's, here's the reality. The Bible uses the imagery of marriage a ton. So in, in the New Testament specifically, um, the husband would propose, and we'll see a little bit about this this morning with Joseph. Um, he would propose and he would go away and prepare a place for his wife, typically add on to his family's house. And while he's away, the, the bride never knows when he's going to come back, never knows the moment, the hour of the day. But when he comes back, there's a massive wedding celebration. The party goes on for weeks, and then eventually they go back and settle down into the home. So do you think the bride is just sitting there going, nah, like he already proposed, so I'm just going to wait around and he'll, he'll be here eventually? Or do you think she's constantly getting ready and planning things and, and the excitement and the hope and, and the future of what's to come has her motivated to have everything ready for his return? So as we're sitting in the season of already but not yet, we've got to ask ourselves, what are we doing to get ready for his second return? Are we just sitting being idle? Are we getting too obsessed with the things of the world and missing out the things of Christ? What then do we do while we wait? So with those kind of three lenses in place, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. Matthew 1, 18. Matthew 1, chapter 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. While his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. And here they're quoting Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So let us pray. And Father, as we dive into your word this morning, would you speak truth to us? Father, would you allow us to slow down and, and understand the weight and the severity and the necessity of this text? And Father, if it wasn't for your incarnation, we have nothing if it wasn't for you walking as a human, we have nothing. Father, this, this is the start of, of our story, of our life, of you coming to save sinners like us. So Jesus, I just pray that, that this morning, that this week, that this season would be a time of rest, to slow down, to ponder and consider all that you've done for us. Jesus, it's only by your name that we pray. Amen. Now, just a, a few things about the story to kind of get our minds around it. Because, again, we know the story. I, I, would, I would be, and I hope it's true, it would be awesome, but I would be shocked if I just had a quick poll and said, has anyone not heard the story at some level? We've all seen Charlie Brown Christmas. We, I own it now if you want to come over and watch it. Like, we, can, we can see this part recited over and over and over again. But the reality of what's happening, we have to put ourselves back in the first century because they're coming out of 400 years of silence. 
So that all the prophets pushing, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, the Savior is coming, get ready, silence. 400 years, four to five generations hearing nothing. I mean, if we, if we don't hear anything in the next day or two, we start to freak out. Amazon Prime has ruined all of us. That if packages to get here quickly, we're, we're coming unglued. 400 years. I mean, that's me pouring into my children, hey, the Savior's coming. Them pouring into their children, hey, the Savior's coming. Them pouring into their children, the Savior's coming. And then their children getting to see Christ come. So we have to understand that, that they've been waiting. They've been praying. They've been considering. They've been dreaming for a long time. 400 years of silence. And then this happens. And so Mary is probably 13, 14 years old, uh, which again, just doing math a lot this year, like Auburn is four or five years away from that. What? Right? Like this is crazy. So she's probably 13, 14. Joseph is probably 17 years old uh, because part of that tradition was that he had to go get some goats. He had to save some money. He had to bribe the father of Mary just to even get the opportunity to propose. So Joseph had to kind of get his trait figured out. He had to go work for a couple years, save up and buy some goats, bring it back, present it to Mary's father just to get the permission to ask for her hand in marriage. So he's probably a couple years older and man, Jewish tradition is strict. I mean, they're like not even holding hands. So Mary has to go, oh man, I've got to have this conversation with Joseph because I'm, I'm pregnant. An angel has spoken to me and, and here's the situation. So, hey, hey Joseph, will you, will you come sit down? I need to have a conversation with you. Let's, let's go in private. And Joseph's going, yeah. All right, Mary, let's go in private. Let's hold some hands. This is going to be great. Sits her down. Hey, Joseph, I just need to tell you I'm pregnant. All right, now just picture this. Not in, engaged, not married. The love of your life is pregnant. And all Joseph is thinking is Brad. Had to be Brad across the street. I know the way you look at Brad. His name's Brad. Do we have a Brad in here? Good, right? Brad. Brad's fault. <laughs> Stinking Brad. But I mean, seriously, we can read over this and, and not realize, like, like, guys, this happened. This is a reality. This was a real, genuine conversation. Mary had to somehow convince Joseph, hey, I'm pregnant, but it's from the Holy Spirit. How ludicrous is this conversation in front of us? I am pregnant, and it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, I would love to have that conversation with my kids, right? Like, that would be a far easier conversation. Hey, honey, when, when a husband and a wife really love each other, the Holy Spirit comes in and gives them a baby. That would be an easier conversation than what we have to have. But the Holy Spirit, I mean, this is just crazy. We cannot skip over and, and underestimate or belittle the fact of what's happening. And how would any of us respond to this situation other than hang, hang, anger, than pride, than I'm going to belittle Mary, I'm going to destroy her reputation. But we see Joseph's response. Man, he's a good man. He's a faithful man and he resolves to take care of this quietly. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to belittle you. I mean, there might be some thinking in there of like, you're, you've gone crazy. Like, like you're going to destroy yourself. So I'm just going to back out of the way and let you do this, Mary, because you're crazy. And then the angel of the Lord shows up to Joseph and goes, hey, all this is legit. This is real. This is happening. Stay, stay with me. Marry her. Raise this child the best way you can because Jesus is here. That Jesus has come. The, the, the waiting time 
is over. The 400 years of silence is over. It's here. Now, this is not some random Jesus. The angel of the Lord is not having to explain and give a historical lesson because Mary, Joseph, all the Jewish culture, they knew it. They were waiting. They were longing for this. I mean, it was, it was on the fruit of their lips. They're constantly talking about it, dreaming about it, praying about the Savior that's going to come and rescue them, just like we should be constantly thinking, considering, praying, getting excited about the day that the Lord will save all of us again. It will redeem us out of this God-forsaken planet, and we'll see no more sin, no more death, no more pain. He'll redeem the heavens and the earth, and be all good again. We should be longing for that, just as Mary and Joseph are longing for Jesus. But I want you guys to look at me, look with me at verse 22. Because there's a phrase in here that all of us have probably heard over and over, but, but for whatever reason, this has just gripped me. And I want to spend the next couple weeks just trying to understand this phrase. Verse 23, excuse me, not 22. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when I first started kind of getting into the Christmas spirit, listening to some Christmas music um, at the beginning of November, I heard a song with this name, yeah, I heard it, I said it, beginning of November, don't be hating, it's Christmas time. I'm not going to wait till Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving means nothing. Christmas means everything. So I listen in November. There's the door. Emmanuel, God with us. For whatever reason, again, I've grown up in church. I know these stories. But that phrase, God with us, just gripped me. Man, it was an earworm that every time I was alone and had some minutes to think, that phrase, God with us, God with us, God with us, just started marinating in my ears. And Charles Spurgeon, we'll have this quote up there. Charles Spurgeon, on Christmas Eve of 1854, preached a sermon around Isaiah 7. And this is what he says about God with us. The Virgin Mary called her son Emmanuel, that there might be a meaning in his name. God with us. My soul ring these words again. God with us. Oh, it's one of the bells of heaven. Let us strike it yet again. God with us. Oh, it is a stray note from the sonnets of paradise. God with us. Oh, it's the lip sing of a seraph. God with us. Oh, it's the notes of the singing of Jehovah when he rejoices over his church with singing. God with us. Tell it, tell it, tell it. This is the name of him who was born this day. God with us. So what I want us to do is slow down and marinate in this phrase, God with us. What does this mean? What are the ramifications? What are the consequences? What is the joy of this phrase, God with us? One of the, the major pillars of Advent is this hope. So if you grew up in a church that traditionally lit the candles of, of the four candles and you had the Christ candle on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, um, it always starts off with hope and then love, joy, peace. But hope is a thing that starts. And I, I don't know a better way to define hope other than God is with us. I mean, how do we have hope of the future? How do we have hope right now? How can we make it through this life other than the fact is God is with us? But do we understand that the inverse is also true? What is hopelessness? God without us. Us without God. So if hope is God with us, hopelessness is God without us, us without God. Though we have no hope, we have no future, we have no plan if God isn't with us. 
But here's, here's the rub, church, if I'm just being honest, and it happens in me and it happens as us. We functionally live our life that God is not with us. That we don't understand the power of that phrase that God is with us. I mean, just in this season, we've got so many things to do and, and per- presents to buy. I mean, my wife came in last night as I was finishing up my sermon. She said, hey, can we talk about Christmas presents? I was like, no, we can't. My ears are bleeding. I'm so tired. I've got to finish the sermon. We can't. And that was at 1231 o'clock. I mean, we're, we're constantly thinking through all that has to get done for Christmas. And what we skip right over, the fact is we have to do nothing. It's already been done. God is with us And there's power in that. But if we had to kind of dive into why does that not matter? Why why do we not buy into the fact that God is with us? The ultimate lie that we all believe at some level is that I don't need him all the time. God is with us, which is great, but but most of the time I'm okay by myself. Like I I can accomplish this. I can take care of this. I, I can basically do most of my life without him. Every now and then I might need them, but, but I, I'm okay. I, I can do this by myself because we, we miss over the fact that it's sin that's gripping us. It's sin that's bogging us down. It's sin that is separating us from God. It's, it's sin. It's the reality that we have to walk into. 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. Ephesians 2.1, And we were dead and our trespasses and sin. Sin is the problem. Sin in me is the problem. It's not can I do this or can I not do this or, or can I figure this stuff out or can I be happy or can I be joyful? It's none of that. The problem is sin. Sin in me is the problem. Now, I, I know if I could zoom out real quick, I know what you're thinking like, oh, this is a really chipper Christmas message there, Pastor. Let's rail in sin. That's what you're supposed to do. Well, that's what I am supposed to do. Look with me at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Save his people from God with us means he's saving us from our sins. But we honest and in upfront about our sins. Because if we're not, then we belittle the whole idea that God is with us. That if no, we're not upfront about that, that, that our sin is what's separated us, our sin is what's destroying us, our sin is what's damning us, then God with us means absolutely nothing. So we kind of walk into God without us. We, we've got this, God. You're, go ahead and move on. And then we get surprised when we walk into a season of hopelessness because we've discounted all the hope that we have in Christ. So, so here's the reality as, as we start to really kind of understand this. And maybe it's, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's not you. But, but when I was reading, considering, thinking, pondering God with us, the question that just kept coming to mind is why? Like, why would God want to be with us? Why, why would he do that? Why would he step out of a perfect communion, communal trinity? Why would he step out of perfection and put on flesh and walk among us? Why would he even come down. God with us. I mean, this is literally like us going to hang out with our worst enemies. This isn't like, oh yeah, like I'm a really cool person. God wants to hang out with me. No, I love you. You're not. Your sin has separated you from Christ, from the love of God. You are an enemy to him. 
So God with us just makes no sense to me. I, I get it. I love hanging out with the people that I enjoy, that fill me up, that mutually encourage me. But God is leaving all of that to come with us, those that constantly belittle him, act like he doesn't exist, show him no love, no affection. I mean, gosh, we can fast forward to the end of Matthew, that his own people were the ones that had him murdered. And he knew all of this walking into the planet. God, with us, why? Why? Why would he do this? If we go all the way back, you don't have to flip there. If we go all the way back, it starts in Genesis 1. Why would God come with us? Why would he save us from our sins? That we see Genesis 1, everything was created, everything was good. They were constantly in the presence of the Father. They were doing all that he asked them to do. They were um, being good stewards of the resources God had given them. Everything was perfect. Everything was in perfect harmony. And then sin entered and fractured everything. And we fast forward just a little bit into Genesis uh, where God almost destroys everyone and everything. But he saves one family that is somewhat faithful to him being Noah. So the floods came and the boat rises and everything gets destroyed except for Noah and his family. And we fast forward to the middle of Genesis and he sees Abram, the one that is faithful. He makes them a covenant. Listen that your offspring are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. I covenant this to you. I'm, I'm with you. I will be your God. You will be with my people. Amen. I will not destroy the world again. I make this covenant to you. So we see this fast forward through Isaac. We see this fast forward through Joseph. We see this fast forward through Jacob. We see all these incredible stories of the Old Testament where over and over and over again, these men are unfaithful to God and God keeps his covenant. And we just spent the last 12 weeks going through Joshua where we see them conquer all the promised land. And it wasn't against the evil of the day. It was because of sin. It wasn't that they were taking back uh, um, something that would never belong to them. That was the promised land that sin had destroyed. So it wasn't a fight against man against man. It was a fight against God, against sin and evil. And he took it all back. And the, the uh, prophets in Isaiah and Ezekiel prophesized what's coming. Christ is coming to redeem us, to make us once again right with him. So we see, is, why is God doing this? Why is God with us? And never once had to do with our faithfulness. Never once had to do with how good we are. We see this illustrated for us clearly in Genesis that it was all his covenant. It was all his promise that he promised to be our God, no matter how faithful or how good we are. And we're in trouble. That our sin has separated us. There's no way that we can be bought right. There's no way that we can do enough good deeds, do enough good things. So if God is not with us, then we are no longer his. We cannot be saved unless God saves us, redeems us, and answers us. So the sin in us is the problem, and that leaves us hopeless. But God with us is the answer, and that gives us hope. The sin in us is the problem, and that leaves us hopeless. But God with us is the answer, and that gives us hope. So as we're starting to consider this over this Christmas season, what does God with us actually mean? That if we were hopeless without him, but God with us, now we have a hope, we have a future. We can be bought with a price. We can be made new. What does this mean? What does this look like for us today as we start to consider and ponder this? 
Because there's been so many times in my life that, that someone has wronged me, they've sinned against me, they've, they've done something to our family, and I can say, listen, brother, I, I forgive you, you're fine, but I don't want to be around you. It's like, there's no ill will in between us. Go about your day. We're not going to be friends. We're not going to hang out. But I'm also not going to murder you in your sleep. Like, you can count on that, but, but we're not going to be friends. You're not coming over Thanksgiving. You're not coming over Christmas. When I sit down and watch the Christmas story for 24 hours straight on Christmas Day, you can't be there. Anyone else do that? Three people, you're going to heaven. Everyone else, we'll see. But because God always keeps his promises, because he is with us, what does this mean? If you'll flip with me to Galatians 4, I kind of want to end with this. And, and then just leave some moments just to pray and consider. This might be the only time of silence in your week. And I just want to capitalize on that this morning. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. That God with us is not some distant thing that is way more intimate than that. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that's where we are in this story. That God has sent Jesus, born under a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law, to save us from our sins so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. God with us is not theoretical. God with us is not distant. God with us is not some idea. God with us is a relationship that we have. We can cry out, Abba, Father, the deepest yearning in our souls to have this father relationship. We now have it because God is with us. That we're not slaves, we're sons. We're not slaves, we're daughters. We're not heirs through God. That everything that Christ purchased on the cross is now ours if God is with us. That is the hope that we have. That is the promise of the future that we have. That is what should cause us to rejoice and worship and praise him is because God is with us. Now we have hope because we have a father who listens to us as we cry out. That we're no longer slaves, but we're sons and daughters. We can cry out to him. We can run to him. We can be rescued by him. So as we're walking into this Advent season, do we believe in that hope that we have because God is with us? Does Emmanuel just get stuck in our minds and our hearts going, how, how can it be? How can it be that God would be with us? I don't like being with me. How could God leave everything in perfection in heaven and walk down to rescue me? When I, don't, I don't want to rescue anyone around me. What is the mystery that this season brings? What is the memories? What is the feelings that this season brings? And it's not some crazy, mystical Santa Claus man, but it's the power and the promise of a future because of what God has done when he gave us a hope that God is with us. So, so what do we do then in the season of waiting, this already but not yet? We put all of our hope in Christ. 
first and foremost. We marvel and we worship. We put our hope in Christ. We marvel at the fact that God is with us. And this, this brings us to worship. And so here's how I want us to close out this morning. We end the gathering the same with, with communion, that we can remember that God is with us, that communion is the perfect picture of that, that Christ on the cross, dying for our sins, he's rescuing us, he's saving us from our sins, because that's the purpose of why he came. We see Jesus over and over again saying, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick, that I came to seek and save that which was lost. That God with us means he's on a mission to seek and save that which is lost. And the only way that that can happen is by the blood of his son spilled out on the cross. It's his body being broken for us. So as believers, we have a time where we can take and we can remember and we can be drawn back to the finished work on the cross. So I want us to take that. But I also want us just to stop and consider for a second, where, where are we this Advent season? Th this morning, where is our hearts? Um, are we busy thinking about the next party and the next work and the deadlines that we have? We've got to turn in this and this and this before we can actually check out for Christmas season. Are we, are we dreading the fact that we have family function after family function after family function and we just don't really want to see any of them? College students, are you dreading the fact that you're still here because you're not ready yet to go home because of what home represents? Are we dreading the fact that, that maybe Christmas isn't going to be all that we thought it would be, that, that we're going to ruin Christmas for our kids because it's not magical and mystical? And Are we in the season where this is a Christmas time and this is our first or second or third year without a loved one, and, and what is this going to mean? What are the implications of this? That our marriage is busted, that life is just not going well. There's so many things going on in our mind. So what does it mean for us to say, in light of all of that, God is with me. That God has came. This God has came to save sinners like me. That God is here. That we can't just skip over the fact that he was born on a manger. That he didn't stay a baby forever. That he came to rescue sinners like us. So can we stop for a minute and listen, and pray, and get all the distractions of all the, the holiday seasons out of our mind, and say, what does Emmanuel mean right now for me? Where is there hope in the fact that God is with us, that God is with me? So I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come up and pick a little bit. And I just want us to consider that think through that, pray and ponder on that. Because like I said, this, this might be the only moment of silence you've had this week. And then when you're ready, communion will be open. And then this can draw us, this marveling that God is with us can draw us into worship. And we can sing and rejoice that we have hope, that we have future, that we're not hopeless because God is not without us, that God is with us. And now, therefore, we have hope we have a promise. We have a future. So let's pray. And Jesus, we are so grateful for a space like this, for an opportunity like this to hear from you. 
God, I know that there are so many thoughts, stages of life, and things to consider and ponder and wrestle with. So, Father, I just pray for these next few moments that our, our minds can become clear. Father, that we can just meditate on this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us. That you are here to save us from our sins. Because we can't. Father, you didn't come to be with us, to walk among us, to rescue us from our sins. If we could have done it, that would negate the whole fact of you being born. But you have came, God, with us. So church, where do we believe that? Where do we rejoice in that? That God is with me in this struggle. God is with me in this sin. God is with me in this season. Church, where do we reject that? Where do we feel like we are responsible for making sure this happens? That if it's not for us, that this won't take place. It's all about me in this certain situation or in my marriage or in my schooling or in my family, that it's just about me, that it's up to me completely, that God is not with me. And church, you feel it. You feel the hopelessness set in when you think it's all up to you. come to save us, to rescue us from our sins, to hold us captive. All we have to do is repent and believe. We have to turn from saying that, that I can do this and believe that I can't. And that's why God came to rescue me from that. Jesus, I pray that you speak to us in this room this morning as we have an opportunity just to stop and consider the power of that statement, that you are with us, that we're no longer slaves but sons. If sons, then heirs. God with us. So church, take time to consider, pray, and When you're ready, communion is open and we'll continue in worship. But I ask you not to rush into communion without examining your hearts, your motives. Where are you placing your hope? And that's to where we go, Lord. And we cannot thank you enough and we cannot serve you enough because you are a holy, unblemished God. So thank you for sending your holy, unblemished son to die a holy death so that you can see us as holy and unblemished. And thank you for salvation. Not salvation so we can go to heaven, but salvation so that we can dedicate the rest of our lives to the God who has set into motion the past in our life. You are a good and loving Father, and you've given so much, Lord.
Thank you for that. I pray that nothing that was of, that anything that was not of you does not leave this place. It falls upon deaf ears. No one hears it. But God, any truth that you spoke today through your word and through your servant, let it not stay here, let it go. Let it live a surrendered all life and not a surrendered almost life, Lord. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.